We hear terms such as misinformation, disinformation, campaigns of influence designed to manipulate us. That's our topic on CXO Talk. Sarah Jane Turp, tell us about your work and tell us the things you're involved with. So I'm a data scientist. Uh, I've been working on misinformation, disinformation for the past few years. Uh, before that, uh, actually many years, I've worked on how algorithms affect human beings, um, specifically autonomy theory, robotics. Um, so all my work at the moment is misinformation. It's just my life. <laughs> uh, I work half of my time on misinformation that's financially motivated. So tracking down pages that are uh, fake news sites uh, and, and related sites. The rest of my time, I work on large-scale misinformation. Our second guest is Pablo Brewer. Please tell us about your work and your affiliation. Currently, I am the military director for the Donovan Group, which is U.S. Special Operations Command Future Studies and Think Tank, where I think about all of the things that nobody else is thinking about so that we can plan for them in the future. Uh, one of those things is uh, the prevalence of misinformation. And so I've been working with SJ for the last nine months or so on trying to solve this problem. And our third guest, uh, guest co-host as a, and subject matter expert is Dr. David Bray. And he's a well-known figure here on CXO Talk. And David, welcome back to CXO Talk. Thank you, Michael. It's great to be here and great to be with uh, SJ and Pablo and, and to learn from their wisdom and expertise. When we talk about disinformation and misinformation, what what are we talking about? So set the stage for us. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of uh, arguments about the, the ontology of disinformation versus misinformation. And so what we've defined it as is the deliberate promotion of false, misleading or misattributed information in either content or context. That actually matters a lot. So people think of misinformation as just being fake news, uh, as being maybe putting out text that's completely wrong. Most misinformation is actually true, but set in the wrong context, where that context might be who you think it's coming from, when it's coming from, where it's coming from. So it's those, those trails and those contexts become incredibly important, both for production and for tracking. Sorry, Pablo, to you. No, no, that's absolutely right. In order for, for misinformation to work, it's got to be 95% or better true. Uh, the reason is that if it's wholly false or mostly false, it's very easy to identify as false. And so it's got to be mostly true and just false enough that you're likely to believe it. Yeah, I mean, you're not trying to get people to believe lies most of the time. Most of the time, you're trying to change their belief sets. And in fact, really, uh, deeper than that, you're trying to change, to shift their internal narratives slightly, or at least uh, use their internal narratives. So to pull on that, because that's fascinating, um, SJ and Pablo. So you're saying really what it is, is taking things out of context with the goal of not necessarily deliberately putting false information out there, but taking things out of context in a way of shaping what people rethink. Can you talk a little bit more about the narratives and, and what the role of narratives are there? Well, it's also about the way that they feel. So um, one, one great example is uh, a lot of the, I, I, a lot of people say Black Lives Matter, but Black Lives Matter is a an ectica group. It's a, a, a real group. Um, but some of the fake black activism that happened back in 2016, 
So there are genuine problems. And a lot of the work done was to exacerbate the emotions around those problems, to exacerbate the, the splits in society. You're, you're trying, as an aggressor, you're trying to weaken an opponent where that opponent could be a nation state, quite often is a nation state, but these days could be um, a company also. Um, Pablo, again, let's pay tennis. Mostly what these try to do, narratives try to take advantage of the, the listeners or the viewers' cognitive and social biases. You already have to be predisposed in some way to believe the narrative that you're being presented. Otherwise, you, you end up with a cognitive dissonance and you actually reject the message. Uh, so, so you have to be predisposed in some way. Now, uh, one of the points that you made was about uh, completely false information. Uh, as we get to deep fakes and fake videos and fake audio, which are at least on the surface, indistinguishable from the real thing. It'll be interesting to see how far that gets pushed, but that's certainly a great concern. It's one thing when you're reading static text or when you're uh, looking at a static picture and maybe the narrative that you're being presented about that picture is different than the narrative from which it was originally told. Uh, it's quite another thing when you're, what your eyes see and what your ears hear can no longer be believed. When we say narrative, I mean, there are some confusions around that. So I guess we have to clear that one up fairly fairly early. So narratives in, in the, the, the frame that we talk about mostly when we're talking about misinformation together, uh, that's the, the set of stories that are your baseline for your culture. So that might be the baseline for your culture as an American, the baseline for your culture as a whatever American you happen to be, that like you know Irish American or Italian American, no, name name your name your set. Except British American, we don't seem to exist. Um, <laughs> but they they might be, um, for example, we're geeks. Uh, so geeks have a baseline set of stories, and the 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 layer on which a lot of the incidents, a lot of the attacks happen, is is in shifting those stories, is in using those stories. Um, so using those narratives, that that those those base layers, and and using stories and memes to push I, out those, to attack those. I have heard the term cyber kill chain. We are the people who came up with this idea of mapping the, the cyber kill chain to misinformation, and it, it works quite well. So Pablo, all yours. Sure, so the, the concept of a kill chain, and it's unfortunate that it's got the word kill in there because that's not necessarily um, accurate. We can call it an influence chain. I mean, that works. Yeah, so the, the, the concept is that in order to accomplish misinformation, there are certain actions that you must take. Uh, and if you envision this as a chain, if any one of those links is either skipped or broken, the attempt at misinformation fails completely. Uh, what SJ and I and the rest of the MisinfoSec working group did is we took a look at how similar problems have been viewed in the past, one of those was uh, cyber warfare, and so Lockheed Martin had written this cyber kill chain. There had been others that had been using it, uh, and then MITRE had developed uh, the attack framework, which is the kill chain plus associated techniques, tactics, and procedures to accomplish each link in the chain. And we went, hey, th this is great. This actually works. Uh, and so we developed AMIT, uh, which is our framework for adversarial misinformation and influence tactics and techniques. So we've defined all of the necessary tasks to complete misinformation, and we've started cataloging through real-world incidents 
what the techniques are to accomplish each of those tasks. So when when we're talking about uh, a chain, so we talk about it in terms of the stages that you would need to go through. For example, we have planning stages, uh, we have content stages, we we have a people stage for things like creating um, the fake personas you would need and or uh, recruiting the real humans you would need uh, to to create a full uh, influence campaign, so misinformation campaign. So... This this is a lovely sort of horizontal versus vertical. I mean, this is when I wave my hands around because I would love to show you the diagrams. Do we see times when misinformation is being directed to all sides? So it's not just trying to sway one way, but in fact, try to create polarizing wedges or social wedges from multiple dimensions and actually get groups that oh. naturally may not necessarily like each other, but are not really that vehemently in disagreement become actually more vehemently disagreed and actually have emotions on a high? Is that what they're trying to do? All the time. I mean, this is the point. I mean, this this is just one form of misinformation campaign. There there are many other types, but this is one that's been well used against the the US. Uh, Some of it's got physical. Um, There have been a few times, um, amusingly, the pro and anti-Beyonce campaigns after the Super Bowl incident, where the opposing groups have been given fake um, meets um, physical um, protest um, calls and turned up in the street opposite each other. Um, we, we think that was the Russians playing, you know, testing stuff, but it, this, this isn't just people shouting on the internet. Um, the potential is much, much higher and wider. Generally speaking, though, we, we talk about five overarching strategies for misinformation, and we call those the five Ds. So uh, one of those that, that, David, you alluded to is the divide where you take a population uh, and you, you bifurcate that population so that they're on opposing sides of the same issue. You get them fighting with each other. Therefore, they're not paying attention to anything outside of their own population. We, we certainly saw that uh or attempts to do that during the the 2016 presidential election. Um, Other strategies are uh, distort, uh, which just takes a narrative and distorts the actual facts. Uh, So the Russians might say, uh, we're not invading the Ukraine, we're liberating ethnic Russians. Uh, Another one is to dismiss. Uh, So that's the typical uh, dismiss your accusation, make your own counter accusations. Uh, China, certainly every time they're accused of stealing intellectual property uh, or or engaging in cyber warfare, their their standard narrative is to say, we don't do that. However, we're often the victims of U.S. aggression in cyberspace. Um, Distract is another uh, one of those strategies. uh, And distract actually tries to ignore the current narrative and start a completely different narrative. So a uh, recent example of that is the MH17 shootdown. Uh, the, the Russians never directly addressed whether or not that was a Russian missile. Instead, they asked the question about why is a commercial airliner flying through an active combat zone? Uh, and then the last one is dismay, uh, which is an ad hominem attack. And these are attacks that are so outlandish that even by responding to them and saying that they're outlandish, you, you lend them credence. And, and so probably the best known one of those is is the Pizzagate during the last election. Um, and, and so those are the typical tactics. So again, distort, dismiss, distract, divide, and dismay. Uh, and any of those tactics can either be used to coalesce uh, people to get a narrative going or to bifurcate people to get them warring with each other so that you can do other things. I mean, yeah, I mean, those are... The 5D, so Ben Nimmo came up with the original 4Ds and we, we added divide into there. 
the originally they were talking about Russian against US, but as you're listening to to Pablo, that this is all over the world now. Um, pretty much everybody who can stand up a misinformation campaign is doing it, and pretty much everybody who's who can be subject to it is is seeing it in their feeds. And I guess that gets to the question: Why now? Is this just because the internet is more widespread globally? I mean, or have these things been going on since the printing press, the radio and television, and it's now just that anyone can actually be a producer of uh, misinformation. So if you look historically, um, the ability to reach a mass audience was limited to a select few. Originally, when you talked about handwriting scrolls, the church and governments were the only ones that were literate and had the manpower and the finances to be able to do those things. Uh, And then you move forward to movable type. And again, it was expensive. uh, And so very few people could transmit. And you could reach a wider audience because literacy became more prevalent uh, and anybody could receive these as long as you could were within physical distance. Um, now, certainly one of the things that we also see occurring throughout history is that the purveyors of this kind of technology never envisioned how it could go awry. So as the Catholic Church uh, kind of allowed for the Gutenberg Press and printed the Gutenberg Bibles, they certainly didn't envision uh, Martin Luther mass printing his 95 theses and nailing them to uh, to church doors. Um, then you fast forward to radio and telegraph, uh, and it's the same thing. Very few people have access to the studios to transmit. You get more and more people to have access to receive the transmission, uh, and it becomes the de facto news standard, and certainly nobody envisioned that uh, an entertainment show, War of the Worlds, would be mistaken for actual news. Uh, and, and then you go to television, and we are where we are with television, but in the 1980s, if you were an American, you got your news from ABC, CBS, and NBC, and so when you went to talk to your neighbor, uh, you could agree or disagree with the news. However, you at least saw the same news, uh, and so in each of those uh phases of this evolution of information, what allowed was the limited few, i.e. the President of the United States who could talk to ABC, CBS, and NBC and say, hey, look, I want to talk to the whole U.S. populace to reach wider and wider audiences. Now, what happened with the internet is we've now democratized who can reach mass audiences. So anybody can hop on social media. And we now live in a world where an entertainer like Katy Perry can reach twice as many people as the president of the United States via social media. And there are no gatekeepers anymore. So we've now completed the circle. We've gone from very few can reach a mass audience to anybody can reach a mass audience. I mean, this is also the dark side of the internet, uh, the dark side of big data, if you will. So um, yeah, back back in the big... The old days, as we we're talking about 10 years ago, we talked about the three Vs, so volume, variety, and, veracity, uh, and velocity. And things are just, there's a lot more of it. It's a lot faster, and it's across an awful lot of different platforms, and misinformation carries in the same places as well. It's just an awful lot easier. I mean, a data scientist, um, it, it's very easy to set up something that broadcasts across to a lot of people very fast. We have an interesting and important question from Twitter. Sal Rasa asks, what can people do? How can people understand what's happening around them with this stuff? So there's a whole set of things. Um, so part of the, the reason we built things like Emmet, uh, we broke down um, the misinformation campaigns and misinformation incidents in, into techniques. Well, so we could look at each technique 
and look at each stage and say, what can we do against these techniques, against these stages? So there's this idea of left of boom, right of boom, uh, when we're talking about stage-based models. So um, left of boom is before the, it, it's an old um, term from um, bomb disposal. Thank you. <laughs> Where you know, the stuff that happens before the thing goes off versus stuff that happens after the thing goes off. In this case, the thing going off is the misinformation reaching the public. So most of the time, um, if it's reached the public, it's getting late. Um, we really like to deal with it before that. We're working on processes to do that. If it's got to you, uh, be, be critical. Um, be critical of what you're reading. Be critical of what you're sharing. If it looks too good or too exciting to be true, check it. Uh, look at the provenance on it. Look at the date on it. Um, I, I still get friends sharing stuff that's two, three years old because it's really exciting um, or really hits them in the feels. And it hits everybody. I, I too, I mean, I work with this all the time and I too have shared misinformation uh, and being pulled up by my friends uh, who are wonderful and useful which is why we need to do left of boom. Um, so think about what you're reading. Uh, there are some very good explainers out there. There's a lovely one by the State Department that talks about uh, the pineapple pizza, how people are being divided over whether they put pineapple on pizzas or not, and some of the tactics to see. There are things that you can do just as a consumer of media and there are things that you can do as a purveyor of media and, and uh, platform. So um, as an average consumer of media, as SJ mentioned, not only be critical, uh, but most of us tend to follow news sources that, that follow our own biases. You should also go back and listen to the news sources that absolutely enrage you uh, and, and get possibly the other side and then make a more informed decision because Realistically, the truth is somewhere in the middle. Um, the way that misinformation often works, and, and SJ again alluded to this, is it tries to provoke an emotional reaction. Uh, and and we, we're all familiar with clickbait. We're all familiar with these fantastic headlines. And then you click and you find out there's not quite as much meat there as we expected from the headline. Uh, but if you're finding yourself having an emotional reaction, that's the time to take a deep breath and really examine what you're reading. Oftentimes, the stories say, well, uh, you know, party A said B uh, and, and party B reported C. And so, hey, go back and, and make sure that that's actually what was reported. One of the other things that you can do is try as much as possible, and this is hard, to verify the provenance of the information. Um, if the information is coming from a legitimate news source, and I, I leave it to the consumer to decide what that is, it's probably going to be verified more by actual journalists than somebody that's putting out an editorial blog. And so these are things to keep in mind is consider the source, uh, consider where the original material came from. Think about if you want to look at the people-centered internet, there are other groups as well that are trying to do demonstration projects that show more resilient community approaches to this and other events. And, and try and play a role in encouraging what President Lincoln said, which is, I do not like that person. I must get to know them better. The same thing can be applied to either people or ideas. If you see an idea that makes you feel like you don't like it, take the time to at least get to know the other side, articulate it enough that you can understand where it's coming from. 
Are there centers of um, concentration today for organized disinformation and misinformation campaigns? In other words, where is it coming from today? Well, there's the classics, uh, the Internet Research Agency in Russia, but there's also some emerging uh, industries. So, for instance, we're, we're starting to see what, I, I guess, misinformation farms starting to, cre- to, to, to happen uh, in places like the Philippines. And we're seeing companies starting to, to look at misinformation as a service. So there are different types of misinformation. Um, for example, China does these amazing charm campaigns. So the, the information is about um, the, the omission of Tiananmen Square, the presentation of the nation in a, a good light. So I'm going to put out that in their framework, they have this great analogy of a triangle. So if you imagine a triangle, tip on the top, the base is wide, Oftentimes, those that are trying to do misinformation or share or promote misinformation or disinformation, they start with a campaign plan and then initiatives that flow from that campaign plan. Then there are actually the narratives they're trying to change or shape. And then finally, the artifacts of that. And so they can see everything that's happening and they understand the grand campaign. The challenge of the people that are trying to defend or or create communities that are more resilient to misinformation and having it been thrown their way they start with the artifacts first. And so they're trying to piece together what's happening. And oftentimes it's not till long after you even go further up the chain and see the narratives, you see the initiatives. And if you're lucky, maybe actually get to the source of the campaign. But it's, it's what makes yeah. much like in the cyber realm, the counter misinformation realm, the advantages currently go to the offending side. The challenge for the defenders is piecing it together fast enough. And as SJ and Pablo said, getting left of that boom, left of that event, fast enough that you have an effective response. So part of the problem there is just when you get to the internet, it's just the vast amount of information. I I love the infographic internet minute. It comes out every year or two and they show you how much information traverses the internet in a minute. And it's, you know, millions of hours of YouTube videos and it's hundreds of millions of tweets and Facebook likes and you have it. So the first problem is how do you look at all of that information? Then the next one is how much of it is, is false or misleading? And then why is it misleading? Is there an intent there? Did somebody make a simple mistake? Um, I could quote you all sorts of, of statistics, but I'd be lying about those mis- statistics and I don't want to contribute to the misinformation. Uh, but the intent goes a long way. Sometimes people just make mistakes and, and there's no intent there. Uh, but discerning that and finding out where that information came from and what the intent was is, is a hard problem. Uh, and so it really requires uh, both not just a technical look, but a sociological look at this. This is this is not a technology problem. This is a sociology problem that is enabled by technology. This is a socio-technical system. Uh, and, and part of what that requires is looks at from various different fields, from policy fields and from journalistic fields and uh, technical fields and social fields and economic fields and Part of the problem is we've all been looking at this problem differently. We've all been using very different languages. And so that's also part of the reason that we we wrote this AMIT framework to have a lingua franca, if you would, where different groups with different backgrounds can talk about the same problems in a way that all of the other groups can understand it. Um, this is not going to be a, a silver bullet problem. This is going to be a, a thousand bullet problem. 
And that explains why it's so complex to get rid of. But I, I want to ask SJ just to elaborate on something you said earlier about the Chinese charm campaigns, because I'm quite interested in that because uh, I was actually touched by that personally. It was quite, quite fascinating. So can you just elaborate a little bit on that? There, there's just work on all channels. Um, I mean, I tend to be careful talking about what I'm tracking. Um, so attribution is really hard. But so generally, if we're talking about who did this, we, we can only ever put a probability that somebody did this, a probability that a nation state was involved in this. So, you know, we can say things like there's a high probability Iran did this, or there's a high probability that China has done this, uh, based on the way that it's done, on the intent that we believe is in it. Um, but yeah, chi China has done a lot of work in lots of different ways. Is this being done more for their own population to... to oh, okay. So What's the, what, what are the reasons why? Some is on own population, some is on external population. So we, we tend to see more the external population um, misinformation, well, disinformation, uh, than we see the internals. So here's an important point is that different audiences are going to require different methods of delivery and different messages. And that's because they've got these pre-existing social and uh, and cognitive biases. So um, you certainly if you uh, talk to the average Chinese citizen, uh, they absolutely believe that the Great Firewall of China is not there for censorship. They believe that it's there because the the People's Republic of China and the uh, Communist, Chinese Communist Party are, want to protect their citizenry, and they absolutely believe that's a good thing. Uh, if the U.S. government tried to sell that narrative, uh, we would absolutely lose our minds and say, no, 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 this is a violation of our First Amendment rights. Um, so the in-group and out-group messaging have to be often different. Uh, certainly, there's a lot of uh, internal messaging that China does with their own people. Uh, certainly, there's a lot of external messaging they do to the greater world. Part of this is just standard diplomacy and information has always been kind of one of these instruments of national power. Uh, but there's no doubt that China has stated that they want to be the preeminent world superpower. And part of that is, hey, we want this Belt Road in, uh, initiative and here's why it's great for you. Um, and, and so part of this is, it, it's kind of funny, if this were a company, we would call it advertising um, mm -hmm. because it's being done by, by a country or because it's being done by a corporation, we may call it something else. It false advertising some, in some cases, though. I have a question for you, too, though. So going further, though, is this, is this to demonstrate that, that representative forms of government can't work to, to make us fight amongst each other? Is there money in it? I mean, it, is it, or is it just simply to have influence on the world stage uh, using this as a tool of national power? Only above. And do you all worry, you know, are, since you're researchers in this space, are you concerned that they're ever going to come after you or other researchers in this space? How do you make sure um, it, it doesn't get focused on, on the laser beam on us? Well, there is a reason I don't have a home address. Um, <laughs> okay. I, I, I think part of this is we've created a, a discipline and, uh, and communities so that there are a lot of people working in this field now means that the, the, the risk is spread, which, which is useful. Mm -hmm. Yes, initially there, there was concern. It, it was very comforting to, to go and hang out with the special forces for a while. 
that that kind of helped a lot. Thanks, Pablo. <laughs> why? Why? Why was that helpful to spend time with special forces? And and what was the nature of that hanging out and interaction? I wear two hats, and I mentioned the one hat is is the director of the Donovan Group, which is the or the military director of the Donovan Group, which is that Future Studies and Think Tank. In my other hat, I'm what they call an innovation officer. I'm one of two innovation officers at Softworks, which is a completely unclassified. 501c3 nonprofit that's funded by U.S. Special Operations Command. And that's so that we can get uh, after non-traditional problems and non-traditional tactics and work with uh, non-traditional partners. Uh, and so that allows us to get into one room. Uh, SJ is a data scientist and maybe somebody from one of the social media companies uh, and maybe a few special forces uh, operators uh, and some folks from uh Department of Homeland Security and talk in a non-attribution open environment in an unclassified way so that we can collaborate better, uh, more freely, and really start to change the way that we address some of these issues without worrying so much about that. And if you pardon the expression, cultural China. Um, now, as for, uh, you know, am I worried about uh, being targeted as misinformation? I, I think we should all be worried about being targeted by misinformation. If you're on social media or if you're uh, surfing the internet, you are constantly bombarded by messaging. Uh, unlike uh, on radio and television, uh, these ads don't have to identify themselves as ads. If they're political ads, they don't have to identify who the special interest group is that funded them. Um, and so perhaps it's time to reevaluate some of those things. Uh, am I concerned personally about uh, being attacked? I, I, I don't think my ego is quite that big yet, but I don't I don't think I'm going to be going to Beijing anytime soon. And if I do, I don't think I'm going to be taking any of my personal electronics. The other question is, what gives you hope? Is this going to be a problem that we can figure out new solutions to? Is this something where maybe new human methods? What gives you hope? InfoSec gives me hope uh, that another community has seen a similar sized problem and dealt with it, created an entire ecosystem around dealing with it. Uh, it it's not perfect. But there, there is a path that's already trodden. We've, we've already picked up a lot of their methods, so they've given us an acceleration on this. Uh, and also, you know, humans. Uh, humans are resilient. We, we, we will adapt to this. We, we have adapted to internet worms. We've adapted to spam. We'll adapt to this as well. How is this different, misinformation, disinformation, different from InfoSec, information security? I think the layman tends to lump it all together as, you know, bad stuff happening on computers. The endpoints are humans. Most InfoSec, the things being attacked are your computers. So you're shutting down computer networks, you're shutting down individual computers, you're infecting or you're getting information off computers. And this point, the things that you're shutting down are human networks. You're poisoning human networks. You're affecting individual humans. So the it's carried on the internet, but it's very much about the wetware, about the people. There, there is a long tradition of humans being part of the attacks in, in InfoSec, of social engineering. So you will attack the humans to get out the systems. Uh, this is attacking the systems to get at the humans. Um, and there's recently, I, I was quite cheered to see, so we were at the ISAL meetings um, recently when the Cognitive Security ISAL got announced. 
and to see that the three layers now are physical security, cybersecurity, and cognitive security. So we're now part of the, the layers that need, need to be protected. So the answer is yes and no, all at the same time. What do we do about this, right? So we agree it's a bad problem. How do we solve it? How do we fix it? There's a couple of things that we can do, and, and this ties into the, you know, what gives you hope. So when, when SJ and I first started talking about this uh, about a year ago, uh, nobody was talking about it, and there were still arguments going on about whether or not there were misinformation uh, campaigns, uh, and now everybody's talking about it. Uh, you see covered on the news, regardless of which news channel that you're watching, you hear it being talked about on radio stations, we're, we're talking about it here on, on podcasts, uh, so that's hopeful. Um, now that we've got a bit of a framework that, that multiple disciplines can use, uh, Department of Homeland Security has, has helped stand up this Information Sharing and Analysis Organization, or ISAO. There's a recognition that um, there's more to ones and zeros, that there is a social aspect to this. Uh, and we've received very positive responses. We've gone around and talked about this thing is going on. Uh, there's been really very little pushback. Uh, and there's been no pushback on we really need to address it. Uh, so there's some things we can do as, as a tech technician. Uh, if you're developing a platform, think about how could this platform be abused? We, we want to give everybody a voice, but how do we guard the whole against the one or two bad actors? Uh, if you're a consumer, how do I make sure that I get varied viewpoints and I don't close myself off? How do I engage in civil discourse, which is something that we've gotten further and further away from? So we can we can do these things, uh, having uh, policy people and government talk about it, having uh, technical people talk about it, uh, having nonprofits talk about it uh, is all helpful. I think there's been a recognition by journalists that... Uh, and in the drive for more clicks and more advertising dollars, uh, the producers are driving the news as opposed to the journalists driving the news. And so uh, I know I've had uh, discussions with journalists about this. There is great concern. I think we're going to take a round turn on that shortly. So um, there's something uh, all of us can do to make this better. Yeah, I mean, we take some of the money out of it so we don't get those uh, amplifiers for money. Um, but the MisinfoSec working group, the next part of their work is is now on counters. We're starting to collect um, where counter measures have happened, whether some of them have worked. We're starting to look at um, both those stages and the techniques within them to see how each of those could be counted individually. So this is the similar work to the stuff that was done in InfoSec on counters to, to common techniques there. And Ooh. we just keep going. We just keep moving forwards on this. Where's the funding come from to solve these problems? We're self-funded on this, um, but yes, <laughs> David? You hit the nail on the head, and I would say there is a nonprofit called the People-Centered Internet Coalition that we are, we are trying to galvanize different players from the for-profit sector, from the private sector, uh, from nonprofits, from governments around the world, because you're absolutely right that, that this is going to be a hard challenge if it's not got some fuel to make it happen. And what both SJ and Pablo were saying to me, I think it's a lot like how epidemiology became a field. Uh, when, when the first epidemiologist ever, John Snow, turned off the pump because that was the source of cholera, he didn't even know what bacteria were. We didn't even have cell theory. Uh, but they knew enough from what they were seeing that that was a source of the problem. And then the science evolved into having 
the framework, much like how Pablo and SJ have put that forward. Now they're actually becoming more rigorous and thinking about what counters work. So that can actually become evidence-based scientific field, but that's going to require fuel. And it's going to, the good news is we now at least have a common vocabulary, whereas a year or two ago, we didn't have a common vocabulary and that itself was sometimes used to take things out of context. But it really is, you're seeing right now and, and, and C-suite executives should help play a role in the creation of this new field, much like how cybersecurity has been trying to mature over the last 25 years. What should this field be called? What's the term? Uh, we've called it misinfosec, um, but also cognitive security covers a lot of the thing that needs to be protected. So it's about you, you want to have a positive thing you want to protect word rather than misinformation, the thing you want to get rid of, because there'll be another thing. Is cognitive security the same as misinformation? No. Cognitive security is the thing you want to have. You want to protect um, the that cognitive layer. It basically it's 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 about pollution. Um, so misinformation, disinformation is a form of pollution across the internet. It and just because we're going to get comments about this, my position on this is is clear. Has always been clear. We don't want to remove people's voices. What we're trying to remove is artificial megaphones. What's the difference, a question from Twitter, between misinformation and disinformation? That's an epistemic argument we'll, we'll never dig out, dig out of the hole. Um, it's going to be how it's uh, perpetuated, how it's transmitted, and who's doing it. Uh, misinformation is usually changing the context or content. Uh, disinformation is completely made up facts, generally speaking. Okay, so Zachary Jeans asks a great question. Thank you, Zachary Jeans. What conferences or meetups do you recommend around this subject? MisinfoCon is a series of conferences around this. Uh, there was a, a World Wide Web conference recently, had a side conference on it. Uh, there is a list. Um, if you look on the MisinfoCon website, I think the list is held there of all the conferences connected to misinformation. MisinfoSec, we're talking about a conference. Just watch, watch that slot. I really hope that we start having uh, the media conferences and journalistic conferences and the the policy conferences start talking about this. Uh, I think most industries should be talking about this in some form or fashion. How is this different from various journalistic organizations and academic institutions uh, with journalistic journalism centers? How is what they're doing different from what you're doing, because it seems very similar to me. I would say the difference is, whereas journalists, especially post-World War II United States, were trying to make sure stories were objective and had perspectives from all sides, I don't think there was ever an intent that there were actual actors trying to manipulate things out of context to misuse these social media platforms and other outlets to create polarizing social wedges. What's different now is there are, clearly as the internet's become more available to people and the more immediacy, immediate reach that has surpassed what television could do now with the internet, it's about trying to both change the thousands of narratives as opposed to three or four news channels that are out there to shape what you think and then try to involve you as a human to amplify what might be things out of context to create polarizing wedges even further. So this is something that can't be solved by any one sector. It's going to require nonprofits, it's going to require governments, it's going to require for-profits, it's going to require journalists, it's going to require all of us. 
And of course, the challenge is, is how to do that at scale, given that all of us are already busy to begin with in a way that's manageable for open societies. And is it scale in real time as well? So it's this idea of real time response. Journalists tend to do either pieces on something or they're looking after their stories. David, there are many organizations, journalistic organizations, academic institutes. Uh, Craig Newmark, who we both know, is funding great efforts around journalistic uh, and information integrity. And so how are those anti, I'll just call it generically fake news, even though I realize it's not the right term, uh, how are those efforts different from what SJ and Pablo are working on? So it's the diversity of people coming together. Um, as you saw, SJ is a data scientist, Pablo's with the, uh, the Donovan Group and, and Softworks. Uh, we've got Vint Cerf at the PCI as one of the co-creators of the internet. The difference being is we are trying to bring together a diversity of perspectives, which first requires a common vocabulary. Not to say that those efforts aren't needed, those are great, but it's really that big umbrella in which you have different groups and different perspectives because this is going to require almost a whole of society response. It's also the infosec perspective, but it's all, more importantly in that, it, it's that most efforts are right of boom at the moment. We're looking left of boom as well. Right. So it's about we before, have some before the misinformation is out there as opposed to clean up afterwards. Yes. Yeah. Back to the funding question. Uh, SJ, you mentioned that you are self-funded. Uh, and so the question is, why? With all of the, all of the, this topic is so much in the news, uh, it affects the government on such a national level. Why are you self-funded? There's an independence so we can move fast, um, but also getting funding that quickly for something that different. And originally the idea of MissInfoSec was just so different to what anybody else was doing. It just wasn't going to get it in time. And we wanted to build this as quickly as we could. We've just started a new company, Cogsec Tech, to, to build out from that on consultancy. So we may not be self-funded forever, but it mattered. There are other sectors that are funding this. So the, the original discussion about this was funded by, by the Donovan Group. We had a radical yeah, speaker yeah. series in, in December of last year. And you can find all of those talks, mm -hmm. including SJ's, on YouTube by looking for Softworks, S-O-F-W-E-R-X. Um, uh, Facebook has just announced a new prize challenge where they will create deep fakes and ask people to look at them. Uh, DARPA has numerous challenges uh, concerning misinformation and deep fakes. Uh, so we're just now starting to see that there are other funding sources out there. The problem is that nobody really saw this as a problem a year ago. Um, so we did get a little bit of money from Craig Newmark, uh, Newmark Foundation for MissInfoSec Working Group. We need to mention that too. Thank you. Thank yeah. you, Craig. So we're just now starting to recognize we, the Royal We, the societal we are starting to recognize that this is a problem. And so you're starting to see government and industry and educational institutes uh, get interested. And, and hopefully what we do correctly is uh, share resources, share findings and share research so that we can optimize the funds that are available to, to address this issue. And if I could just real quick foot amplify that is, is exactly as you said, is there are now, now clearly what's different from a year ago is there's at least a dozen, if not more flowers blooming in this space. But if we really wanna be a force multiplier, there needs to be communication across these different efforts. And, and as I said, Michael, the challenge in the past was 
just having a common vocabulary to describe the problem you were facing, much less convince funders that you actually had a way to tackle it. Because people don't usually want to spend money unless they can convince they're going to get a return on what they're funding. And so I think now that we've begun to work on their, their, their framework, one is amazing. Two, we have a common vocabulary. Three, now that there's all these different efforts that are blooming, what we really need to make sure is, are there ways of peer review and peer sharing of knowledge so that we can be cumulative in our lessons learned as opposed to each doing things without any cumulative advance together? I would like to thank Sarah Jane Turp, Pablo Brewer, and Dr. David Bray. Thank you all for taking time to be here. It's a very fascinating and important discussion. So thanks, everybody. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. Everybody, please subscribe on YouTube and hit the little subscribe button at the top of our website and we'll send you our newsletter, which is chock full of information on upcoming shows and great information, great, great guests. Thanks so much, everybody. And I hope you have a great day and we will see you again next time. Bye bye.